Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Rebecca Robbins. Adam and I are coming to you from STAT's global headquarters here in Boston. Rebecca is recording from STAT's San Francisco outpost. It's Thursday, April 12th, and here's what's on the docket this week. Novartis just bought Avexis for $8.7 billion to bulk up its gene therapy unit. We'll discuss this and other signs that biotech M&A is picking up. Former Axivant Sciences CEO David Hung scrubbed his experience at the company from his LinkedIn profile. We'll talk about this and other awkward breakups between biotech companies and their CEOs. The annual meeting of the American Association for Cancer Research, or AACR, kicks off this weekend. We'll talk about how a sleepy little conference once known for mouse studies turned into a go-to venue to premiere late-stage clinical trials. And it's not every week that we get a chance to talk about Dwayne The Rock Johnson. But this week, we found a way to justify it. Stat reporter Megan Thielking will join us to talk about her experience going to see The Rock's new CRISPR-inspired blockbuster movie called Rampage. But first, a word from our sponsor. At Takeda, we work tirelessly every day to serve the needs of our patients. We aim to earn the trust of society and our customers through our integrity, fairness, honesty, and perseverance. We strive to be best in class and won't stop until we help create better health and a brighter future for people around the world. Learn more by visiting us at Takeda.com. Last week was the worst week for biotech stocks since 2016. Then this week came around and there's been a total rebound. So what's going on here, Adam? Well, M&A is happening, uh, Rebecca. Uh, you know, this week started with Novartis buying Avexis for $8.7 billion. Uh, there's lots of rumors and speculation of other deals in the works. Uh, and that's got investors kind of excited. I mean, Damien, you, you know how this works, right? I mean, investor, biotech investors love M&A. Yeah, very much so. And it's sort of a feast or famine thing, or it has been. Um, 2018 was meant to be or predicted to be the sort of year of the deal in biotech, owing largely to any kind of concerns about the election that were lags in the past being resolved, and then also the tax cuts that corporations got, which allowed them to both just pay less to the government, but also to bring cash from overseas over to the United States at a lower tax rate than Um, had initially been the law. And so the thinking was that's going to set off this deal bonanza. You think about this every January when people come up with their biotech predictions for the year ahead, right? This is the year of the M&A is kind of always at the top of the list. But, you know, this year, some of those predictions look like they might actually be on the verge of coming true. Uh, So far in Q1 2018, we saw $47 billion in total deal value. That's the most biopharma M&A in terms of dollars since the third quarter of 2015. That's according to data from EP Vantage. And the breakdown is kind of interesting here because we haven't really had like mega deals in the first quarter and, and through kind of the, the, through the second quarter, right? I mean, the deals have been kind of small. Yeah, and there's sort of two ways to look at that. I think on the positive side, you could say that the fact that they've been largely dink and dunk deals in great quantity means that this is a sustainable thing that will continue in perpetuity for 2018 and it's not propped up by mega mergers of multi-billion dollars. But you could also point out that like there's a finite number of companies out there and if it's just small bolt-on acquisitions, that could dry up very quickly. And those mega mergers, despite the fact they lead to layoffs and infuriate congresspeople, investors make a lot of money often 
when those deals go through. So as we mentioned before, Damien, Novartis buying Avexis uh, and its gene therapy pipeline uh, this week for $8.7 billion. Does that deal make sense to you? I mean, $8.7 billion is a quantitatively large number of dollars, I think anybody would say. But I think it's a reminder that if you want something that looks like it works, in this case, Avexis is fairly close to the finish line with its gene therapy, you have to pay up for it. Novartis has almost infinite Swiss francs to spend, but the idea of starting a new in gene therapy or investing on their own probably looked like throwing good money away. Yeah, and the Avexis deal also kind of fits in nicely with Novartis's focus on gene therapy and cell therapy. Uh, you know, they did a licensing deal with Spark Therapeutics earlier this year. Obviously, they've got all the CAR-T business that they're doing, so it's kind of, it makes a lot of sense to, for them to buy Avexis. Uh, you know, there was some disappointment from the Biogen side, you know, but a lot of people wanted to see Biogen buy Avexis, and that deal obviously didn't happen. And so people were kind of wondering what Biogen is going to do next. Well, I think that point you just made, Adam, also kind of illustrates the difference between Novartis and Biogen. One of the reasons there's so much consternation about Biogen is that their strategy kind of seems up in the air, and it seems like there's a lot of contemplative meetings that go on there, whereas Novartis, even though it's a huge Swiss company, is pretty, like, they execute things. They wanted to do gene therapy, so they bought a gene therapy company, and now here we are. Whereas with Biogen, it's always like, how much should we prioritize neuroscience, what's going on, there are executives leaving, and et cetera. So what is this I keep reading about Pfizer potentially acquiring Bristol-Myers Squibb, Adam? Well, I think Bristol-Myers Squibb is one of those companies that's kind of out there as like a target for another large pharma company. Uh, you know, today we heard from the Pfizer CEO through an investment bank that he was kind of throwing cold water on the idea that Pfizer would buy Bristol. But they're always out there as an example of a company that can kind of get consolidated or merged into something else. Yeah, I've been reading Bristol-Myers will be acquired this year for something like four years. And I mean, I have no idea what's going to happen. It obviously could. But... There, I think Bristol's market cap is about $100 billion right now. So at any premium, that would be an insanely large deal. And I think one of the impediments to that in the past has been, um, you know, mega mergers are unpopular. It's like you don't want to arise congressional suspicion. They're not headquartered in the United Kingdom, so there's no tax benefit that you could have. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I'll believe it when I see it, I guess, with the Bristol stuff. Right. And then there's, you know, the, the other rumor that sort of surfaced recently is Celgene, right, and buying some of its partners. And what do you think is more likely, an Agios acquisition or a Jounce acquisition? I mean, it's one of those things where, like, I mean, flip a coin, right? I mean, you know, the, obviously Celgene bought uh, Juno, which is one of its partners earlier this year. So this I idea that Celgene would go ahead and buy another one of its partners is not inconceivable. They're still sort of facing that Revlimid patent clip out in, the f out in a few years from now where they have to sort of figure out how to diversify their revenue base. So again, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised to see something like that happen. And finally, there is one deal that sounds like it's more than just speculation, right? And that's a potential Takeda-Shire marriage. So yeah, we know about the Takeda-Shire situation because of the magic of UK takeover laws, um, which require companies to disclose their thinking when they're thinking about buying somebody. And so Takeda is apparently kicking the tires on banks to look at a $50 billion acquisition of Shire, which would be the biggest deal in I don't know how long if it actually happens. So we spent a lot of time speculating about these potential mergers and acquisitions. Uh, you know, we write about it. It consumes a lot of interest and attention from analysts and investors. Why does it actually matter? Because like it or not, M&A is the four loco of the biotech sector. It makes everything more exciting. This podcast is not sponsored by Four Loco, nor does it necessarily endorse mixing caffeine and alcohol. 
M&A is all about marriage. Now, let's talk about breakups, specifically between David Hung and Axavant. Just some background though, Axavant was once the darling of Wall Street because of a drug for Alzheimer's disease that it was developing. That drug, like virtually every other drug for Alzheimer's disease, eventually failed and that decimated Axavant's stock price and now nobody really talks about them anymore. The man presiding over it all was David Hung, the distinguished biopharma executive brought in to run Axavant in 2017. So he parted ways with the company earlier this year, but I don't think anyone realized just how bitter that parting was until Damien did some LinkedIn sleuthing. Yeah, so I was, you know, just trawling LinkedIn like you do, and I stumbled upon David Hung, and I found it interesting that he had this meticulously annotated LinkedIn profile that included his educational experience and every company he'd worked at, but there was this huge blank where his tenure at Axivant should have been. So Damien, you noticed that David Hung's LinkedIn profile just completely had scrubbed away his Axivant time. Uh, so then you sent him a LinkedIn message to ask him why. I did, yes, diligent and decorated reporter that I am, uh, asked basically, hey, what's up, man? And what he sent back to me within minutes was kind of jarring, and it is as follows. I'm prohibited from discussing Axivant due to a non-disparagement agreement. However, as is public knowledge, I resigned from Axivant along with my chief operating officer and three members of my board on the same day. It's an experience I'm putting far behind me. All right, so Rebecca Damien, we need to unpack this David Hung response. So much to unpack. So first of all, it's not unusual for a departing executive to sign a non-disparagement agreement. What's unusual is all the extra information that Hung provided there. So the first thing that strikes me here is that David Hung talking about a non-disparagement agreement with Axivant is kind of disparaging. Yeah, no, it's like beginning a sentence with, I don't mean to speak ill of the dead. You mean to speak ill of the dead. And Damien, you never asked David Hung about any non-disparagement agreement, right? No, that was a totally unprompted admission on his part. And then, and then when David says, quote, it's an experience that I am putting far behind me, end quote, that's like fire right there, right? That's just <laughs> like, wow. Yeah, putting a modifier on behind, like I'm not just putting it behind me, I'm putting it far behind me. So this whole David Hung Axivant situation got us thinking about, you know, biotech CEO breakups in general. And there have been quite a few of them that have sort of gone down this, this rabbit hole, haven't they? There have, yeah. I mean, the, there's one that's actually currently ongoing at a company called Arcturus. And I won't get into the sort of gritty details of it, but basically the CEO was escorted out because there was like a, well, the way he characterized it was a coup on the board. So now there are factions, there's a shareholder meeting going on. And I basically just get press releases every now and again that remind me that Arcturus is just kind of a messy situation. And it's a little bit like Martin Shkreli and Retrofin, right? I mean, that, that did not end well either. Speaking of breakups that didn't end well. Jim Mullen leaving Biogen. Oh yeah, that was bad. I mean, you gotta remember, that was the whole Icon, Carl Icon activist campaign, and he really badmouthed Jim Mullen on the, on the way out. And then similarly high profile was what happened at Alexion last year, where David Halal, who had been sort of the anointed heir CEO, uh, who everybody liked, and then suddenly there was an internal investigation, and there were sales practices, and there was the infamous tone at the top. Yes, the tone at the top being, you're on your way out. And David Hung's not the only former executive to whitewash his LinkedIn. Um, Michelle Dipp's profile no longer lists Ova Science, the troubled fertility company uh, that she had run, uh, which had sought to allow older women to undergo IVF treatments. My personal favorite is uh, Galena Biopharma, uh, former CEO Mark Ahn, who completely whitewashed 
that uh, that experience from his LinkedIn. And you know, maybe you can't blame him because you know he was fired for a pump and dump stock promotion scheme that later got him in trouble with the SEC. When I get fired from Stat, I am absolutely removing it from my LinkedIn profile. So we are now days away from the annual meeting of the American Association for Cancer Research, or AACR. Adam, why is the AACR meeting a big deal? Well, you know, this is a meeting that used to be relatively sleepy. It was kind of known as the meeting where researchers and academics gathered to share mouse data or kind of very early human experiments in cancer research. You know, but today, uh, the AACR annual meeting has kind of expanded its scope and it's it's really kind of become the one of the go-to venues for the presentation of your really important phase three or late stage clinical trial results. And Adam, you were saying there's an argument to be made that AACR now rivals ASCO. That, of course, is the annual meeting of the American Society of Clinical Oncology that takes place in Chicago every June. Yeah, that's right. I mean, ASCO has always kind of been known as the sort of like the Super Bowl of cancer research meetings. And I think you can make an argument now that this AACR meeting, which usually takes place in April, it's kind of a, as big of a meeting in some respects as, as ASCO. Um, I think the reason why, a lot of this is kind of a reflection of the heavy investment in R&D, particularly around immunotherapy these days in cancer. You know, you've got like hundreds of drugs under development, thousands of clinical trials that are being run. And, you know, all that data needs to be presented somewhere. And there just isn't enough space or time at a single conference to present all that data. Hence, you kind of have this overflow into other conferences. And that expanded scope has benefited organizations like AACR. These meetings are a real cash cow, right? Yeah, you know, it's kind of interesting. I, if you look at their annual report, so in 2016, which is the last figures available for AACR, their scientific meetings, which includes this annual meeting, generated about $19 million in revenue for the organization. Now that is still small by kind of the standards set by ASCO, which is still the largest conference. Their, their ASCO meetings in 2017 brought in about $50 million. So let's talk now about the data that are being presented at AACR. So some of the clinical trial results uh, coming up are likely to change the way that doctors treat patients with cancer, and especially when it comes to using immunotherapy. Yeah, exactly. So everybody's eyes are on lung cancer data that are going to be presented on Monday. As Adam mentioned, there's thousands of things, but that's sort of what everyone has lasered in on, particularly Merck and Bristol-Myers Squibb, who make two competing immunotherapy treatments. And I don't want to get too deep into the weeds on this, and also cross-trial comparisons are fraught, but come Monday morning, you can very much expect to see pontificating as to who came out ahead from AACR between Merck and Bristol. And one thing that struck me is just how complex the data readouts are these days. I think Ben Fiddler, in a great piece for Exconomy, um, made this point well, which is, you know, back in the day, we used to just have lung cancer data. Now we parse it by different types of patients. We parse it by different types of genetic mutations. We parse it by different combinations. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point, Rebecca. And I think, you know, as, as Ben, you know, in, in his piece noted that even, even doctors, even the lung cancer specialists who follow this stuff closely are having a really hard time kind of parsing the data and trying to figure out which drugs to use with which patients. 
Yeah, I mean, as a person preparing to cover this, I'm suddenly awash in, well, are they PDL1 positive or negative? Is it a greater than 5% response? Are they tumor mutation burden high? What percentage of the patient population? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And granted, I'm not an oncologist, but I'm personally exhausted. Yeah, I mean, the eyes sort of do glaze over when you look at this stuff. And, you know, again, from a, if you look at it even from an investor's perspective, how you try to kind of try to pick winners and losers here is pretty difficult. And the stakes are especially high uh, coming up at AACR, in part because of the crash and burn we saw from Insight's combination therapy trial. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, we we had talked about Insight and their IDO inhibitor in a previous podcast, and then you know it just recently failed the phase three study. Which again, what's the big lesson there, Damien? I mean, I guess the lesson is that immuno-oncology is still an evolving field, and just because something looks good in early trials doesn't mean it's not going to burn out when it goes large scale. And Damien will be covering all the goings-on at AACR. I'll be following that closely. I promise to do everything in my power to keep your eyes from glazing over. Hell of a day, huh? Science experiments just falling from the sky, giant gorillas on the loose. Just a kind of exciting We in the government tend to notice. Where's George? I need to see him. And if you're thinking about putting him on that plane, it's a big mistake. All right, so enough of that other biotech stuff. This is the segment of the podcast that everyone is excited about. So perhaps you've seen the trailer for the new motion picture Rampage, starring Dwayne The Rock Johnson. And in watching that trailer, perhaps you wondered, how did that gorilla get building size, and why does that wolf have wings? The answer, of course, is CRISPR. And so Stat being a science publication sent two reporters, Megan Thielking and Andrew Joseph, to go see the movie. And Megan joins us now. Hi, Megan. Great to be here to talk about The Rock. And so Megan and Drew wrote a review of the movie. And you know it was a good review because it was tweeted Thursday morning by none other than The Rock. He tweeted, great rampage review from my fellow science majors. So to be clear, Megan, are you and The Rock science majors? I did learn this morning that The Rock studied physiology in college, so add that to the list of his many, many, many attributes. <laughs> so what role does CRISPR and gene editing play in the plot of Rampage? So there's a CRISPR experiment happening in space, and the spaceship explodes, and these vials of CRISPR essentially fall <laughs> to planet Earth, and they get consumed in some way by three animals, a wolf, a gorilla, and a crocodile slash alligator, I'm not sure. Uh, and they become gigantic and super fast and super aggressive, and they all storm to the city of Chicago because they were also CRISPRed with bat DNA oh. that enables them to communicate with bio biosonar signals, mm. uh, <laughs> which are being emitted from the Sears Tower, uh, and the rock comes to the rescue. That's the basic gist of gotcha. it. Okay. <laughs> so wait a second, I'm really confused because I thought this movie was about the rock crispering his biceps. That doesn't happen in this movie? No, as I've said, that is all natural. So the rock plays a primatologist who is best friends with one of the animals that gets crispered, George the gorilla. And he wants to see George saved and returned back to normal, so he comes to the rescue. How much of the science in the movie is is kind of real, and how much of it is sort of Hollywood made up stuff? Yeah, I would say it's a mix of real science and uh, Hollywood science. So certainly scientists can CRISPR animals, uh, but it's less clear how many genes were involved in adding bat wings to a wolf and also growing it to be 30 feet long and also making it uh, able to communicate with a radio signal. So 
it definitely takes some liberties with the science, but they do give some actual history of CRISPR, including in the title slide where they, they say that CRISPR was invented in 1993, which is not exactly true, uh, and in 2016 it was classified as a bioweapon, which is also not exactly true, but they're really trying to incorporate CRISPR there, and they do talk about its potential to cure diseases in the movie. So there's a mix. One thing that was interesting that you guys hit on in your review is the point that for a lot of people, this being a blockbuster movie, this might be their first introduction to the concept of gene editing. And when you talk to people who do gene editing for real, they often really belabor the point about their responsibility to communicate to the public about the risks and drawbacks and it can't cure every disease and blah, blah, blah. So I, I don't know, is there any concern that perhaps somebody just learned of CRISPR and now thinks that it's going to turn their dog into a winged beast? <laughs> I think that is a fair question. I do think this would be a lot of people's first introduction to CRISPR because if you don't read stat every day, mm. uh, you might not know about CRISPR. Uh, and so I certainly think it could be a little terrifying, but also the movie doesn't exactly make it, like if I were watching this movie, I wouldn't necessarily think this is a real science. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and so this film is the latest in a long tradition to spotlight evil biotech companies. Uh, how did the biotech company depicted here come off? I mean, they're definitely the villains of the movie. They're not very good villains, but they are pretty evil. So like I mentioned, they're obviously devastated about having lost, quote, tens of billions of dollars uh, on the space shuttle crash that destroyed almost all of their CRISPR samples. They've like contracted with a, a defense company with Joe Manganiello. Mm -hmm. uh, so they've got, they also, I mean, can I spoil things in this? Yeah, do it. Sure, um, go ahead. They also frame a geneticist who comes to the rock's rescue and helps him figure out how to kind of reverse the crispering or whatever. Uh, they've framed her for all of their evil research, and all she was trying to do was cure her brother's terminal illness. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> this is overwhelming for you, isn't it, Megan? It's not funny. It's just ridiculous when you say it in a sentence. I do want to point out, in case listeners hadn't picked up on Megan's incredible fandom of Dwayne The Rock Johnson, and on Thursday morning when I saw that he tweeted your review, I have been to weddings where I was less happy for the bride and groom than I was for you upon seeing that tweet. I had this thought this morning where I was like, I've never been happier for anyone than I am for myself right now. Uh, yeah, I ran a lap around my apartment this morning out of excitement. <laughs> So on that note, uh, Mr. Rock, if you're listening to this podcast, we're here in Boston. We'd love to hang out with you, talk CRISPR. Megan would particularly like to talk CRISPR with you. So come on over. Is there something in the river? I was just thinking the only thing that's missing right now is a giant crocodile. So that's it for this week's episode of The Read Out Loud. We want to thank Matthew Orr and Jeff Delvisio, who produced this week's episode. Jeff Delvisio is also our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And a reminder that we'd love to hear from you, whether it's suggestions for topics, suggestions for guests, suggestions for what The Rock should do next. We read your emails, and you can send them to readoutloud at statnews.com. We really do appreciate the feedback, so thank you.